This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. that a book called Listening to Bob Dylan is unique. Listening is the primary thing one does to Bob Dylan, and there's really no shortage of books about him. There are biographies, commentaries, analyses, compendiums, deep dives into his hometown, religious views, live performances, recordings, individual periods and songs, and many, many more. But I can't think of another one that offers advice on how to listen. Larry Starr is an emeritus professor of music history at the University of Washington. He wrote a book on George Gershwin and on American popular music from minstrelry to MP3, and he's a lifelong Bob Dylan fan. What is a book about listening about, and why might anyone need it? Well, for me, it's that I'm not trained in music or singing or performance, and so what I found useful about this book was the way that it highlights and describes and gives examples of how Dylan uses all kinds of tools and aspects of his work that make him an effective performer and songwriter. Here's a partial list I made while reading the book. Melody, harmony, chords, keys, pace, tempo, coloring, breaking tone, the sound print, dissonance, expression, harmonica as a voice, ensemble size, vocal color, masking, repetition, silence and pauses, verse chorus structures, bridges, blues, sequencing and arranging, and studio versus live work. By naming these, describing them, and sharing examples of how Dylan uses them to great effect, I was able to notice and respond more directly to elements in Dylan's work that I might have missed before. An awareness and understanding leads to an appreciation, or at least the chance of it. You can find a link to Larry's book in the show notes. I spoke to Larry Starr as part of an event for our premium members a few months ago. What follows is a portion of that conversation. Our Plus and Premium members can hear the entire discussion or watch a video of it if they prefer. Please visit freakmusic.club join to learn more about becoming a member. It costs as little as $5 a month. And membership supports our work. There are never any ads in our episodes. But now, here is our conversation with Professor Larry Starr. When, when did the book come out, Larry? It's fairly recent, in the oh, last, last year, year or so, right? It came out, uh, I believe, official publication was October of last year. And what prompted you to write this book? Give us a brief history of you, your life with Dylan and, and the idea for this book. I've always been an admirer of Bob Dylan. I hesitate to use the word fan only because the Dylan fans, many of them have such an impressive and comprehensive knowledge of everything he's ever done that I, I could not put myself in that kind of category because actually I really don't even have the time. But I've always... I um, cottoned on to what Dylan was doing in the early 1960s, kind of grew up uh, with him and um, always enjoyed his music and followed him through uh, the various changes. And generally the pattern with me was, beginning with Nashville Skyline, was what is he doing now? And then gradually coming along to say, well, he didn't want to repeat himself, so that's okay. You know, we, when we... Uh, deeply, deeply revere an artist from a certain period. We 
at least I, I should only speak for myself, I sort of want them to continue doing the same kind of thing, not literally. And when they depart radically from that, there's a sense of, well, you know, why aren't you doing that? And then it comes, well, he gave us this and that should be enough. And now he wants to do something else. And let's try to evaluate that on its own terms rather than judging it otherwise. And I think that kind of flexibility is essential to cultivating any kind of comprehensive appreciation of Dylan because he has just changed so much in different ways. I mean, there are certain things that come along almost with every aspect of him. He's always been deeply immersed in the blues from the very beginning, from the first folk albums. Um, he has always been incredibly attentive to lyrics, of course, uh, mostly when writing his own, but even when he is singing other people's songs. Uh, when, I don't know how many people share my uh, admiration for the Tin Pan Alley out in the uh, in the 20 teens, you know, um, triplicate and shadows in the night. And what strikes me about those interpretations is how sensitive they are to the lyrics. So that's something that that is continuous uh, with Dylan. And the fact that he expects his audience to come with a degree of with a degree of intelligence. You know, don't uh, don't ask me to do what I've done before. This is something new. Give me enough respect to assume I know what I'm doing and try to follow me here. I gave a couple of seminars on American popular music. One was a seminar on, on singer-songwriters, and I started that out. This was for graduate students. I started that out with my own uh, treatment of Bob Dylan and then let other students take other singers and songwriters as they wished. And then I gave a uh, seminar on Bob Dylan specifically. And what I realized is, well, I didn't realize it right then, how little attention is paid to Dylan's musicality. You know, I mean, the lyrics... The lyrics are fabulous, but they're part of a larger package. And if you just read the lyrics, you miss so much of what contributes to, you know, an entire performance. There are so many examples of this, and I could go into it, we could discuss it with time out of mind. But it seems to me that more attention needs to be paid for Dylan as a total package, a singer-songwriter performing musician. And this is, it's the total package that really makes the impact. I'll give you a quick example of that. Way back when, 1963, uh, Dylan is not yet a pop music success figure because his voice is too idiosyncratic, frankly, in a folk world that is defined by the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And Peter, Paul, and Mary have the hit version of Blowing in the Wind, which did a great deal to popularize that song. I enjoyed that at the time until I heard Dylan's original. And now I can't listen to the Peter, Paul, and Mary anymore because it is too sweet. And because everything that is deliberately angular and rough-edged and beautifully so in Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, because it's an angry song, it's not a lullaby, uh, is brought out by his performance and is often very substantially weakened by people who want to make it more accessible, supposedly. So that's, that's the sort of thing that Dylan's um, own performances bring out in his, in his music that is often lost in other performances and is especially lost if you only read the lyrics. Favorite, one favorite example, you're reading the lyrics to uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And, and the line says, people just get uglier and I have no sense of time. Fine. But when Dylan sings it, people get uglier and I have no sense of time. It is so literally an illustration of having no sense of time. You're missing almost the entire impact of it, just reading it on the page. It's really that approach to Dylan that made me really want to talk to you about this, because not that many people 
analyze all the music and especially with your ability to to break it down and we're going to talk about some of the you know, 20 or 25 different characteristics all these different aspects of it that you're paying attention to and i think it adds a lot you know, to the listening experience so let's dive into time out of mind when you think of that album what are the characteristics that you think of when you reflect on on that album it was dylan's first album of original material for eight years i mean the last one had been oh mercy from 1989 so that's a long stretch. And certainly in terms of Dylan's career, it's by far the longest stretch I think that you had with no original material. He did do the two uh, folk albums. And here comes Time Out of Mind. And this brings certain characteristics of what I'll call conveniently Dylan's late period. The very distinctive craggy voice that he has in, on that album. It's, there's a little bit of it in No Mercy, but he really, he indulges it in that because it so well suits these songs, many of which are about dragging long journeys. Um, I mean, the opening, for example, you know, I'm walking on streets that are dead, uh, sets the immediate tone for much of the album. You know, he's walking a million miles trying to get to you, uh, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. And these, these are anguish trips. And there's a characteristic voice tone, there's a characteristic pacing which tends to be very slow. I mean, Dylan does not completely abandon up-tempo numbers, but they are few and far between in all of the late work, uh, perhaps no more so than in rough and rowdy ways, which is, you have to attune yourself to the pacing of that album if you're going to appreciate it. You have to just, you know, let it happen and um, not seek immediate gratification or understanding what the song is about in the first minute. But I think this comes in with time out of mind. Uh, the songs are... All, I mean, Dylan wrote a lot of long songs in his career, but the songs here are all on the relatively long side. And of course, Climax with Highlands, which was by far the longest song he ever wrote up to that time. I think it's the first album that he seems to have conceived with the idea of a CD length in mind. Mm. Um, it is 72 minutes with Highlands. Even without Highlands, it's very long, longer than most of his LPs. And so it seems to be set for that kind of listening time and the kind of very leisurely pacing that that allows for the individual songs. So I see that as setting out this sort of late career tendency toward uh, meditative, uh, long songs, require a lot of concentration, and albums that are conceived, with the single exception of Together Through Life, I think, as CD-length experiences. Dylan really does seem to have produced his CDs with the idea that if you are willing to take them that way, they are wonderfully structured listening experiences beginning to end, but they're very substantial. Maybe what would be interesting is to run through some of these, um, these characteristics that I mentioned that you talked about and just have you comment on the way they're used mm. you know, on, on this album. There's no order to these. I just pulled them as sure. scraps out of the book. One word that you use several times in the book that I think is interesting is coloring and color. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, this is an album that I would describe it as a, as a feel. Um, maybe tell us about what, what you think of color of Time Out of Mind. Well, this is partially, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Lenoir, how does, how does Daniel Lenoir pronounce Lenoir, yes, Lenoir. Lenoir. I mean, he is, he is a producer here. He's also a producer of Oh Mercy. And uh, the sound has sometimes been characterized as kind of swamp-like. It's, it's dense. It's a dense sound, but bottom-heavy. So there sometimes is a very light top uh, against that bottom-heavy sound. You hear that at the beginning of, uh, of, of Lovesick, and you hear that a lot 
on the album. And of course, it goes very well with the, with the color of Dylan's voice, which is very bottom heavy on this album. And all it very much helps to give this feel of the music is trying to move against something which is almost holding it back, which I guess is very good for Swamp, like you want to view it that way. Um, and the other, I'm going to race ahead to this point, the way that is enhanced by, the Dylan, by Dylan's use of vocal silence on this album, which is one of its most marked characteristics. And it shares that with a lot of the later work. Again, the difference between just the, reading the lyric and hearing the way it's delivered, you know, I'm walking through streets that are dead makes a certain impression, but I'm walking, yes, think about that, through streets that are dead and that falls, you know, like an ax on it because we aren't expecting that. Dylan allows the fact that the end of the line is not anticipated from the beginning which you know, could not be more uh, colorless. I'm walking you know, through streets that are dead. Um, and he does this repeatedly on the album, uses silence to uh, reinforce the sense that this is music coming from a, from a very lonely, difficult place. Um, my favorite example of that is Not Dark Yet, which is haunted by silences. Not Dark Yet has silences at the end of each vocal phrase, and it doesn't require any big sense of rhythm to count that. It has 10 beat units. Each vocal phrase is 10 beats. Now, typically it's eight, four plus four. Uh, so there's an ex there's a pause at the end of each line, and the pause is essential to the effect of the song. Again, if you read the lyrics on a page, you wouldn't anticipate that each line ends with this almost labored pause as if it's difficult to get to the next line, but I'll try. Another one that's characteristic of the blues is repetition. Yeah. Uh, and clearly that exists here. Well, he does use an interesting characteristic, uh, which is his unusual take on blues lyric structure. I mean, typically, the most typical blues structure is a three line stanza where the first two lines are the same. Uh, to quote an example that will be familiar to Dylan listeners, she's got everything she needs. She's an artist, she don't look back. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She can take the dark out of the nighttime and paint the daytime black. That is a classic AAB, as we would call it, blues lyric structure. Dylan often instead chooses to repeat the last lines from stanza to stanza. I'm walking a million miles, but I'm trying to get to you. Uh, from stanza to stanza, that repetition of the last line, which is a different way of thinking about blues. It almost creates a chorus effect within the blues structure, which is not common, but which Dylan does. And um, I'm trying offhand, and I'm not going to be successful with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Crossing the Rubicon. In, uh, I crossed the Rubicon in Rough and Rowdy Ways does exactly the same thing. And it's using a 12-bar blues chord structure with the chorus line, I did this, and I crossed the Rubicon, concluding each blues stanza. Why don't we focus for a minute on Make You Feel My Love, which I know is, an al is a song that you have some... Uh, thoughts about and stands out on the album, you've identified for me at least an important role uh, in the sequence that the song plays. Yeah, well, it's an important role in the sequence because in a sense, it breaks the sequence. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, a stretch to relate it to the other songs in the sense that it is also a song about, you know, moving and striving, trying to get this person to uh, to make her, I presume it's a her, feel, feel the love. But, um, it has a very different character. I mean, Dylan's on piano. He's not on piano on any of the others, I don't believe. Um, it is it is like a conventional Tin Pan Alley form. 
song. And that's also in terms of its form. It's a four-part song with a bridge, which you don't have in blues, so to speak. It's called AABA, uh, but it's a song that's, you, you know, if you know Irving Berlin's songs, Cole Porter's songs, Gershwin songs, it was the standard form that was used for those often uh, what we regard as sentimental, not necessarily in a bad way, but sentimental love songs. And this um, its kinship with that is established by its use of by its form and the fact that Dylan differentiates it by being on piano. But he seems sometimes fond on albums, especially if we listen to them as whole albums, of having, um, I guess you might call it the musical equivalent of a seventh inning stretch, uh, more toward the end, where we break the prevalent mood or the prevalent musical sound for something else. Um, very, very obvious example of that is on uh, the widely celebrated Blood on the Tracks with Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, which is an emphatically different song from anything else on the album. I heard, I had one student who tried very hard, rather convincingly to relate it in some general ways to other themes on the album. And I said, sure, you can do that. But when you listen to it, that's not what strikes you. When you listen to it, at least for the first time, where the hell did this come from? You know, it seems to be a different world. But I think that's deliberate. I think Dylan wants to break um, uh, the listening experience up in some ways by giving some variety, especially on long albums, of which well, on the tracks is one, and certainly uh, Time Out of Mind is, is another. It's not a song I would pick out as representative of what is most remarkable about Dylan, but I think it's remarkable that he can do these kinds of songs. And of course, his interest in, in songs of this nature uh, came to ultimate fruition with the, uh, the great American songbook albums that he did, you know, in right. the 20-teens, uh, indicating that he, I think he studied this repertoire, was aware of it um, all his career. Uh, there's a little noticed, but actually very good performance of the Rogers and Hart classic Blue Moon on Self-Portrait way back in 1970. Again, that's kind of a ringer on that album. What's it doing there? But it does attest to how, uh, how much Dylan was familiar with that repertoire, even back then. So I think this is his attempt to break the mold and to give us a song in a an entirely different kind of style, which he says, I can do this equally well. Let's talk a little bit about the years after. What started there that we still have today, even in 2022? Yeah, I mentioned some of them, the, the interest in a CD length experience, certainly. The, fasc the fascination with the blues, both blues style singing, you know, blue notes and the that mixture of... Uh, speech-like versus song-like vocal approach. This, this is present from the earliest years in Dylan, but it's, it seems to get even more intense. Dylan will occasionally use literal 12-bar blues form. More often he uses interesting variants of it that uh, are recognizably derived from it, but which have richer harmonies or play with the rhythms a little bit. But this is something that has persisted with every album since Time Out of Mind. The, uh, I say the interest in slow moving, uh, very deliberative kinds of songs, almost songs that have sometimes what I would call almost a meditative quality, you know, very different from the headlong rush of lyrics that you get in some of the early songs like Subterranean Homesick Blues or Mr. Tambourine Man. Maybe the word is vulnerable. He's allowing his vulnerability to be seen more, both in terms of the pacing of the albums and in terms of the way that pacing admits an audience to study and experience the lyrics and the music. I found in reading your book, it helped me to look for and identify 
some of these other characteristics beyond the lyrics. How, how do you advise people to kind of improve their listening who aren't formally trained? I would urge people just consider what is the music contributing to or doing to enhance this particular Dylan experience? Um, and that includes the vocal, of course, it includes the harmonica. And we, we're not discussing that because the harmonica is, I believe, not used at all in Time Out of Mind. Increasingly, he, he's used the harmonica a great deal less. The, in the earlier work, you know, up to and um, including um, the 80s pieces, um, the harmonica is extremely important. You know, what, the harmonica work is not just a pause in the vocal line. It's there for reasons. I'll give just one brief example from the going way back to Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Um, there are brief harmonica breaks between the stanzas of that. And uh, the sound is very much like that of a train whistle. And harmonicas are connected to train whistles. And if you want to know specifically what Dylan did with that, listen to it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. But the harmonica as a train whistle is a blues standard. And um, the train whistle is a call to leaving, you know, a call to getting out. And of course, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right is a song that is completely about getting out of a relationship. And at the very end of it, he plays a stanza on the harmonica. And the importance of that is that words have been exhausted at that point. He has said to the, uh, to the other person's failed relationship, you just kind of wasted my precious time, but don't think twice, it's all right. And what's left to the, to the singer is no harbor in the relationship at all, but he still does have his music. And so he plays a harmonica stanza to make him feel less lonely. And see, that is really there as part of the song. That's really important to realize. But the other musical things, listen, for example, to the way that incredibly spectral sound on John Wesley Harding contributes to the unique ambiance of that album. You know, all along the watchtower with that bass, that thumping bass line, and then the harmonica, which is, which again follows at the end, the wind began to howl, and you can go back and hear the harmonicas, the howling wind throughout the song, if you want to do that. And the way in which he will space things, the careful spacing, a beautiful example from John Wesley Harding is when I went out one morning, because uh, if you read the lyrics, you know, the, the, there are these lines that essentially fall into two halves. A, uh, a very conventional kind of beginning and an unexpected end to the line. When I went out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Paine's, I spied the fairest damsel who ever did walk in chains. But if you listen to the music, these halves are separated by a knowing silence. It gives you a chance to wonder what's happening. I went out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Paine's. That's, that is an essential part of the song, those silences. And you won't see them on lyric sheets. Right. Yeah, great examples. So another, I, I, I'm tempted to just uh, say with George Martin, all you need is ears. There's nothing highly technical about anything I'm talking about. It's just being alert to what the music, the vocal sounds, the silences, the harmonica, what they're doing to create a, a work of art that is by no means, the lyrics are by no means negligible, but they're a part. And in all of Dylan's best work, the music and the performance and the lyrics all enhance one another so that it's remarkably more than the sum of its parts. Is he at all unique in your analysis in terms of the diversity of tools at his disposal he uses? Uh, I think what distinguishes Dylan is just, is the quality of the work, of course, overall, but also the continuous 
probing and experimentation. The fact that Dylan has never let himself go lax or rest in anything. He's constantly seems to be asking himself, what's next? And that there's, there's little that's more admirable to me than that. It sometimes can tax and even enrage his listeners. You know, why are you doing that? You know, why are you singing Stardust? You know, <laughs> but um, try to listen to what he's doing with it. I mean, he is, he is stretching himself and offering to us the opportunity to stretch ourselves with him. We may not want to go in that direction, and that's okay, but it's sort of good to know that it's there. You know, I can, uh, one, one aside of my book, I say, um, I don't anticipate ever hearing a, an album of Dylan singing opera excerpts, but I would never put any money on the fact that he wouldn't do it. You know, in, uh, in the year 2000, I would have said, Dylan recording Tin Pan Alley songs, impossible. It's something someone would make fun of. And yet then he went and did it, three albums worth. Or a Christmas album. Or a Christmas, there you go. Yeah, Christmas album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he should never be counted out. Great. Well, well, Larry, that's a great summary. And I want to thank you for, for taking the time to share your, your knowledge and experience with us. Uh, again, the book is Listening to Bob Dylan, available on Kindle or in, in actual paper. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate the questions and, and what you're doing. I think it's contributing a lot to uh, the appreciation of Dylan. So keep up the good work. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I do recommend Larry's book if you'd like to get a fresh set of tools to help you listen differently and enjoy Bob Dylan more. There's a link to the book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks to Professor Larry Starr for sharing his time and expertise. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening.